and every week. So I want to thank the worship team for that. So, you can think of this as a fairly average length sermon or a really long communion thought. It's up to you. Uh, either way, we're going we're gonna to power on through it. So I grew up in the Churches of Christ, and specifically grew up in Nanton. Um, Nanton was actually famous for being the arch-typical Church of Christ, and I'll explain that a little bit. Um, people would come from far and wide to enjoy the specialness of the church there. You see, in the Churches of Christ, we did two things that were a little bit different than many other churches. One was we celebrated communion every week, and that's something we just did. And uh, the second thing is, that we had potlucks. You guys have okay potlucks. We had potlucks. I am telling you. Unfortunately, I, I do believe there was probably a little bit of pride involved. People went out of their way to have bigger and better dishes. And honestly, it was, it was always considered a high point if you could come and visit the church there because the potlucks were phenomenal. And I do believe that uh, Christians often come together um, in the most collegial way over food. And uh, we've discovered that time and time again. And I don't think it's a mistake that the two things are linked together. So we are looking today at the uh, passage in Mark where uh, Jesus has the Last Supper with the disciples. And if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to Mark 14. We'll be looking at verses 12 and following. But I, I think, you know, God understands that that very necessity of eating can become something very social and something very meaningful uh, when you do it together and when you share together. And so it's, it's not a mistake in my mind that potlucks and communion uh, are so often linked together uh, when I think about churches getting together. Now, uh, the one thing that I have heard other churches say about this, this whole process of having communion every week was, well, didn't you ever just get bored or didn't it become less meaningful? Let me share with you the lesson of Les Howell. So Les was a really good friend of mine. We roomed together. And uh, Les had his first really serious long-term relationship during the time that I knew him. And one day Les walked into our little uh, townhouse and he goes, You know, this kissing thing is kind of overrated. I said to him then, I said to him now, Les, you're not doing it right. Uh, you know, really important good things don't get less meaningful with time. In fact, I would hope that they get more meaningful with time. Angela, you're allowed to find that out in about two or three years. <laughs> Not yet. Communion is a very special time. It's a time when we can reach back through time and really just touch that time when Jesus gathered his disciples together just before he was put to the cross and said, let's share a very meaningful meal, and I want you to continue to share this meaningful meal with each other, with the Christians who are to come, and with Christians throughout, uh, however long it takes before we're all together again. And it's, it's just a very special time. And so if you have your Bibles, do turn to Mark 14, chapter tw- or verse 12. I'm just going to read through bits of it as we go. Um, on the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread... When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples ahead said, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. 
Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where's my guest room? Where, may, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large room upstairs. Furnished and ready. Make preparations. And so off they go. I don't know if you ever had directions like this. I picked up a hitchhiker the other day. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I did. And uh, he said, I'd like you to drop me off at my friend's house. Where would that be? It's somewhere between Cranbrook and Creston. And I said, and how are you going to know it? Oh, it's no problem. There's a high-vis vest stuck on a post. Well, you know, we found a place with a high-vis vest stuck on a post, and it wasn't until I went back to Cranbrook the other day that I realized that probably where he was intending to go was just a few miles out of Cranbrook, where there's another high-vis vest stuck on a post. (laughs) These directions seem a bit vague, but you know what? Jesus has kind of taken off the cloak at this point. You know, if you look through all of Mark and the other Gospels as he does his ministry, he actually takes a lot of effort to ensure that he doesn't do things that are too miraculous or give away too much information too early. And he really kind of toned down the prophetic part of what he could have done until the very end. And, you know, what we see in these last few hours, really, before he was killed, was it doesn't matter anymore because he was trying to keep the situation under control so he wouldn't be crucified too early, I believe. Um, it wouldn't rile up the uh, chief priests and the elders too early. It doesn't matter anymore because he realized the time is here. And so he, he uh, you know, I don't know, maybe he went in there early and found these, this guy and set this whole thing up. I kind of doubt it. He was with the apostles 24-7. Uh, they w- he would have never been out of their sight. And uh, he also has a lot of prophetic things to say during uh, the Passover. And I just, you know, you can just see it's the time. The work is almost done. And he's ready uh, to share this with us. Because, you see, the first thing we learned at the Last Supper is about God's great plan. And thank you for reading from Ezekiel about the, the dry bones. Because, you know, God has never had to change his plan. It's been in place from the very beginning. And certainly as you read through the Bible, once you start to realize how everything fits together, you realize, you know what, he had this in mind from the very beginning. It wasn't that he needed to change. It was that we needed to change and learn and accept that a servant king makes more sense than a conquering king. That, that going to the Lord through Jesus makes more sense than going to the Lord through a priest. That really what needs to happen is we need to come to the Lord, you know, in basically in abject humiliation and say, I can't do it on my own. I need your help. And that it's not enough just to give up, you know, the fatted calf or the extra money or the, you know, the two doves to, to get rid of the sin of the last week. And uh, so God's great plan has really never changed. It's just that we haven't always understood it. So I don't know if the rest of you have noticed, but they're doing a little construction on the highway there in Creston. And at least there you can kind of figure out what's going on, and it's certainly starting to look better. They're also doing some construction right next to what used to be Broster House. And I, I mean, maybe some of you can fill me in. I don't know what's going on there. But I do know this. What you see right now is nothing like it's going to look when it's done. Somebody somewhere understands what they're building. Sometimes they don't understand that you can't then rent that building space out with different building. But okay, that's a different story. Um, but you know, God has always had this plan in mind. He has built towards it. He built a people that were His people, and then from that group, 
He brought a Savior who then uh, you know, died for everyone. And he had disciples that were willing and able to go out to their ethnicity and preach. And then through Peter to go on from there to all peoples and preach the good news of the Lord. There has always been a great plan. And that plan was to restore people to a right relationship with God without compromise. So the plan is there. And despite the fact that the disciples didn't really have good directions, they found things exactly as he said. And that's really how God's plan has always happened. You may not understand it going in, but it always makes sense as it's revealed to us. And so the disciples went, they they prepared the Passover. When the evening came, verse 17, Jesus arrived with the twelve. They're reclining, because of course this is Roman style, right? You lay out on benches so you can eat even more. That's great. Um, And he says to them, you know what? One of you is going to betray me. One of you who's eating with me. What a shocker this must have been. Because at this point, they're one for all and all for one, and probably scared as all get out, because they understand that they're not in the best books of the you know, leaders and the, the, the people who are in charge of the temple. And they know that bad stuff could happen over the next few days. It is important to realize that this is the Passover feast. So this is the feast where when the Israelites were, uh, were rescued out of Egypt, the final plague that God brought onto the Egyptians that forced them to let the people go was to kill the firstborn of every Egyptian family. And the Israelites had been instructed to take blood and put it over the, uh, the lintels of their door uh, to show the angel of death that they were to be exempt from this. And miraculously, the Egyptians lost their firstborn sons that night, and the Israelites did not. It was clearly a miracle of God. And they had celebrated that miracle every year, just like we would celebrate Thanksgiving, as a, as a familial and a cultural get-together to thank God for what he'd done. And so in that setting, Jesus has brought his people together. It's a very important time. Everybody kind of tried to gather in Jerusalem if they possibly could. And he drops this bombshell. One of you is going to betray me. And, of course, they all deny it. That's just not going to happen, Lord. It's not me, is it? No, it's not going to be me. And he actually prophetically points out that it will, will be Judas and uh, that Judas will betray him. And then he goes through those famous lines that we'll come back to about, you know, take this bread, take this cup. And then I'm going to just go off the passage just a little further and look at what happens. Because Jesus then in verse 27 says, you're all going to fall away. And then he tells Peter, who says, you know, no matter what, Lord, I'm with you. I I will stay with you. My name is the rock and I will be here. And yet Jesus says, no, before the crows crows twice, you're going to deny me. Not once, not twice, but three times. Well, this kind of points out our great need. You know, it's, it's all very well and good that God has this plan, but what we need to understand is where we come from. Because you see, as I look out here, and you're a lovely crowd, none of you deserves to be where we are right now. And that includes me. Every single one of us has fallen short of what God asks of us. And it's not hard. Simply don't rebel against me. That's sin. And every single person here, and I speak with some confidence and some history, has sinned against the Lord and has fallen short of what God needs to commune with us. And nothing that any of you have done, or me, is sufficient to work our way back in. 
And that was true even at the Last Supper. You know, this is the 10-10-80 rule, right? Although the math doesn't quite work out, but I'm out of school now, so I don't care. Um, you know, you've got the one guy, Judas. Now, he's just bad. You know, he's the villain. For the love of money, he betrayed Jesus to death. Now, in his favor, he felt so bad about it, he killed himself. But still, it's a bad thing. And, you know, he, there are people out there that are just bad. And, you know, their only goal when it comes to the Lord would be to rebel against him. And then you've got the people that are really just great people. I mean, Peter was a guy who, through thick and through thin, walked with the Lord, stuck with him, was willing to defend him. Yes, he certainly didn't do so good at the very end. And that's the point. Even the very best falls short of the glory of God. Even Peter upon whom it fell to take the word from Jesus and, and, and spread it out into the churches, to the temples, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, upon whom it fell to make that incredibly difficult transition from saying, you know, God is a Jewish uh, protector, it's our theocracy, and, and say, you know what, God is for everyone. God is for every single person. And he wants the message, the new uh, good news, to be spread to every person. And that's why we're here today. That Peter didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. And, of course, you have the 80% or however you want to make the math work out for yourself. The rest of the guys who also ran away and denied Jesus and weren't there for him when they needed to be. Were they bad people? Well, they're actually pretty good people. Um, you know, they didn't betray Jesus, but they denied him. They ran away from him. And it's just it's symbolic of that situation we all find ourselves in. I don't think most of us are really bad people. In fact, in this room, I'm sure nobody is. But we can't do it on our own, and we can't earn it on our own. And, you know, when you talk about God's great plan, I think that's the part, that's the reason for all the history, is so that we can understand that to be in a right relationship with the Lord requires not our effort, but our willingness to accept his effort. And I think it's neat, because I don't know if you're aware of it. You know the whole business about some people have entertained angels without knowing it? That's kind of neat. But do you know who else is here today? Hebrews tells us that Jesus stands in the congregation with us when we sing, when we worship. He's there with us. So not only are we not the kind of people that can earn it, but he's not the kind of person who lords it over us. It's a relationship, a communion with him. So God's great plan, our great need, comes together in this essentially marriage made in heaven. Um, God's great plan always was that we would be together with him. And by him, I mean he, the Father, he, the Son, he, the Spirit, uh, in a right relationship because of the sacrifice made. And this communion last supper is a reminder to us that that's the relationship we have. And again, I want to make the connection. It's, it's a remembrance. He said, do this in remembrance of me. He said, by doing this, you become part of me. So, verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. 
He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I won't drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, this is why there were some pretty nasty rumors about early Christians. They drink blood, they eat flesh, it's terrible. But he's trying to point out that, you know, I was both God, but willing to live as a man. And willing to be human. And all the the trials and tribulations of growing up through 30 years of living in the desert uh, in Israel. And I put that all on the line for you. And when you share this bread, you share that reality. Moreover, when you share this cup, you understand that that blood that washed away sin, you shared with me. It's taking care of you. You now come... So I said you don't deserve it, but in reality, that's not quite true, is it? We can't earn it, but we do deserve it. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And that whole, um, you know, blood for sin that's been shown throughout the history of the Israelite people is culminated in Christ who washed away that which makes us unworthy of being with the Lord. Now, I do want to take the opportunity to pop over to Romans. I do find that often it's easier to let uh, God's people talk than me. These guys were inspired, right? So, Romans 3, verses 9 to 12. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? No, we're just ordinary failed people. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Well, that's depressing. (laughs) Verse 21 says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There's no difference, not between Jew or Gentile, And further on, he makes the point there's not a difference between man and woman. There's not a difference between master and slave. There is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely. There's no cost. By his grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, and he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So, you know, one of the weird and neat things that I'd love to get the full story when we finally get to talk to God on a one-on-one basis is he actually, uh, Christ's gift, not only uh, paid the price for everybody from him on, but those who in the past were his believers. That's why he's God, and we're just sitting here talking about him. Uh, Romans 4, one final uh, little little verse here. Uh, Verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Justification means being made right. When Christ rose again, he made us right with God. So we come to the communion table. It's a ritual sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. And we do this always as he asks us to do, in remembrance of his sacrifice. It's a remembrance of who he was, what he did for us, and what he continues to be and do. 
and, and a recognition that he's here with us. And it's a sharing as a family. Now, this is a, a little bit of a ritual uh, meal, but it's still a meal that we take together. And we take it together understanding that we are partaking in a, in a ceremony, in a supper that has been going on since the Last Supper with Christ. So in our church, uh, we ask people to come forward. We just uh, take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and uh, partake that way. Um, there is uh, some gluten-free options for those of you that need them. Um, there's no gluten in juice, is there? No, I don't think so. I think we're okay. So I will ask uh, our servers to come forward. I will uh, break the bread and, and serve them. And then once they're arranged at the tables, you can come on up, come on up and uh, have communion at that time.